the response cars out there or uh, the respond online. Excuse my voice this morning if I'm a bit husky. I went to the Broncos last night and for the first time in six rounds we actually had a win. Um, it was so good. <laughs> I went with a family of Cronulla supporters. Even better. I was sitting right next to the Cronulla supporters bay. Oh, very, very quiet. How many premierships have you guys won? Just tell me again. One. Boy, that's lonely, isn't it? Okay. We're going to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness. Lord, thank you for things like football. Thank you for those common blessings that we have. The blessings in this country of freedom and food and safety. To have an Anzac service on our Thursday to, to recognise those who have won our freedom. But we, we acknowledge that while they may have borne arms and we are so grateful for them, all good things come from your hand. And the freedoms that we enjoy in this country are ultimately because you have given them. And as we are in this election season and there is so much vitriol and there is so much um, slandering of the other side, our prayer, Heavenly Father, is that you would raise up people into the parliament of this country who stand for the truth of Jesus. People who would stand and say unashamedly, I am a Christian. I love Jesus. People who will do what is right rather than what opinion polls say they should do. Father, we pray for this nation that you would bring revival we pray that you would start that with your church, start that with us. Do that revolutionary work in our own hearts and in our own lives that is required. Father, we pray for us as a church that we would keep our eyes firmly on Jesus. And that just as we love him, the way we will love him is by loving one another. So we pray for those who are ill at the moment in our church those who are struggling. And more than just praying, we pray that you would move our hearts so that when we think of those who are doing it tough, we'll do more than just pray, we'll go and act. And that on our own front line, when we know that our neighbours could, could use a hand or our workmates or our schoolmates, we'll do more than just see it, we'll act. Father, help us to see people, as we sing so often, to see people as you see them. And Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world, as we do each week, who are suffering for the name of Jesus. And even again this week to see people killed in Sri Lanka who own the name of Jesus. And we know that though the media may not report all the instances that happen, that Sri Lanka is just one of those. That every day Christians are being rounded up and killed for their faith. So we pray for them, Lord, that you would give them strength in trial, that they would stand firm, and that they would own the name of Jesus even to the very end, that they would know the truth of Scripture, that we should love Jesus even more than our own lives. So, Father, help us to not be lazy in our faith, but to stand firm. 
And Father, as we open your word today and we, we start this new series in this wonderful letter of 1 John, I pray, Heavenly Father, that it won't be me who speaks, but it'll be you who speaks to your people. And that you would change us at our hearts. Point us to Jesus without looking to the left or the right. And we pray all that in his name, the one who died, who rose again for us, and who's coming to put all things right. Jesus, our Lord. Amen. So as I just prayed there, we're starting a new series today in a book called First John. So John, who we believe, wrote the Gospel of John, and then wrote 1, 2, 3 John. Now, the reason we say we believe it is that nowhere does he actually identify that it's him. But we look at the language of 1, 2, 3 John, and it's so very similar to the Gospel of John that we think it's probably written by the same person who we believe was, as he says in first, uh, the Gospel of John, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, tradition says that was John. And so we come to this letter and it's written by a man. It's good for us to see these letters as more than just words on a page. So a little bit of background of who John was. He was probably the youngest of the, of the disciples. He was the last living disciple, tradition tells us. At one point, the Roman Empire was so infuriated with John, the way they decided to kill him, to martyr him, in a way that all the other Christians would have second thoughts about following Jesus, was to drop him into a huge pot of boiling oil. In tradition, though we, we don't have this uh, in the Bible, so we can't say this is absolutely true, but tradition tells us that though they tried to kill him in boiling oil, they couldn't do it. And so they sent him to an island called Patmos. You can still go to Patmos today. You can still see the house where it's believed John lived with Mary, the mother of Christ. You remember at the, the cross, Jesus said to John, son, here is your mother. Mother, here is your son. So we believe that Mary stayed with John for the rest of her life. You can still go to the cave where he lived in exile. And Patmos was this cool kind of little island in this harbour. And under the sovereignty of God, I love the way God works. The Roman Empire think, right, we've got this guy. We're going to stick him on an island where no one's going to ever hear from him again. But what they actually did was by sticking him on this island in the middle of the harbour, he had this perfect platform from which to write letters to every church in the area. Like, bingo, God's got it again. And what would happen is there was a mail route, and excuse me if I get a little bit geeky here, but I love this stuff. There was a mail route that went around the churches of the harbour. And they were the most prominent churches outside of Rome. And the reason they were so prominent around Ephesus and that kind of area is, um, and you know, if you have maps in the back of your Bibles, this is one of those times you look at those maps because it's so cool, that this was the, the crossroads between Africa, Europe and Asia. It was, the, it was the crossroads of the whole world. And that's why we have most of the New Testament is written to one church, Ephesus. Because Ephesus was the crossroads of the known world. And the, under the sovereignty of God, the Romans put Paul in the middle of the harbour that would write where he could write letters to Ephesus. And then those letters would get passed around all the churches and they'd do a big... And, and the sovereignty of God again on the mailman's route. So they didn't have to come up with ways to get it to the next church. There was always someone heading that way. And the gospel captured Ephesus. And because it captured Ephesus, it spread to the, the, the whole world. And one of the cool things is in the, the later days of the church, 
uh, in the 15th, 16th, 17th century when they started to send missionaries to India thinking we're going to go and reach the great unreached people. When they got there, there was already a church there that had been started by the Apostle Thomas back in like 100 AD. They thought, here we go, we're going to get... Jesus is already there. And so John is in this, uh, I guess, a cave uh, writing these letters... And he loves these churches. And we are told in in tradition that John so loved being part of the people of church that in his old age, after he'd been tortured and uh, almost killed, he couldn't walk anymore. So they would carry him in on a board into church. And just like the Apostle James, we're told that his knees were like this. And one of the nicknames they had for the Apostles back in those days, like James and John, was Camel Knees because their knees were so swollen from so much time on them in prayer. This is John. He loves the church. And the other problem for these churches, because they were where they were, was just like today for us in Australia, with the the advent of the internet, with lots of new ideas coming at us, the church was also under threat by lots of ideas coming at them that contradicted the gospel. And for the churches in Ephesus and all this area, they had the gospel. They, they'd been given, to, given that by John and the other apostles, but now they had these other ideas coming at them. And one of the most prominent ideas that came at the early church was an idea called Gnosticism. And you don't, get, I'm not gonna, don't get too wigged out by me getting too nerdy here, but Gnosticism had this idea. It's a really simple idea. And there's whole different variations of it, but here's the basic idea of Gnosticism. Anything that is matter is bad and it's irrelevant. It's only the spiritual that matters. That's basically Gnosticism, that there was this world and that world, that world was good, that world's what we attain for and anything physical is bad. And so what they said was, if you were a Gnostic, you had levels of knowledge that got you closer and closer to that. And what it meant was that this idea came into the church that they had these ideas that were superior to everyone else and it created kind of a class system in the, in the early church of super-Christians. Christians who had more knowledge than you and you should just listen to the super-Christian. The other thing it said was sin is irrelevant because we don't care what happens in the body anymore. It's only the spiritual so go and sin, sin away. Go and have a great time because what you do in the flesh doesn't matter. And so then John writes this to them. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was revealed and we have seen it and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's stop there for a minute and just see what John's doing. To these people who are saying, we have this new knowledge, this new revelation. That's a new phrase that's been coming around the church more and more these days. I have a new revelation. I have a new idea. John's saying, well, great, you have your new ideas, but were you there when you... Did you touch Jesus' hand? Did you hear him with your own... Did you see him with your own eyes? 
Because the fundamentals of our church, the fundamentals of Christianity are what the apostles taught us. And any idea that goes against what the apostles taught us is regarded by the church as heresy. And you say, well, we don't have apostles here today, so how do we do it? Well, we do. We have it here. And that's why we as a church preach from the Bible. That's why everything we do goes back to, well, what does the Bible say? Because the foundation for us is what the apostles taught us. And here we have these Gnostics coming in with these new ideas and this new knowledge. And what would happen, and this is where it gets really crazy, if you wanted to get the knowledge from a Gnostic, you paid them. Does that sound familiar to you in the modern church? It's called the prosperity doctrine. The prosperity doctrine is nothing more than first century Gnosticism dressed up in new clothes with a fancy hat. Anytime someone comes to you and says, if you want knowledge of God, then you better give me money, beware. Because look at what John says here. John says, we have heard it. And what would happen is they have this idea in Gnosticism of revelation. I have the revelation. I have the new revelation. Give me some money and I might tell you about it. And I'll let you up into the next level of knowledge. No, no, no. John says, what we have seen, what we have heard, what we have touched, you don't have to pay us because we're declaring it to you. We want you to know this because God is a God who wants to be known. And in fact, he doesn't say, we're going to do this so that we get paid. Look at verse uh, 4 there. The thing that is driving him is that as you get this truth more and more, it's so that our joy may be uh, complete. Nothing is going to give John more joy in his life than seeing the Christians of Ephesus and us today getting the truth that God is light. And so he says, here it is. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and we are not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. There's that great phrase there in verse 5, God is light. Now on Monday Thursday we had a service here where we had an evening service. We turned all the lights off in the hall and we just had seven candles at the front. And over the course of the service, as we said each of the phrases from the cross, we snuffed out one of the candles. And it was eerie when the only times I'm here is when the lights are on or the sun's out. To sit here in complete darkness for a little while, it became eerie. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but if you sit in a completely dark room, the, the, the darkness almost becomes heavy. Years ago, we had the great privilege of going to Alcatraz and in America, and you can go to one of the solitary confinement uh, cells, and what they were able to do in those solitary confinement cells was they had uh, barriers, all like double doors, and they had the seals all around the door so that if a prisoner had been particularly bad, they could put them in that room, shut the door, seal up, so that they were in complete darkness. Like I'm talking no light. And you could take turns at going in there. And I said to Catherine, hey, you want to do that? She's like, no way am I doing that. I said, well, I'm having a go. I went in there and I thought, they said to us, 
people very rarely can last more than about 30 seconds to a minute in there. And I thought, challenge accepted, let's do that. I kid you not, I lasted 20 seconds. There was something unbelievably horrible about being in such complete darkness that I literally, like we had that phrase, you know, you're out at night, I was so dark I couldn't see my hand, you could see your hand in front of your face. In this room, you could not see the hand in front of your face. And it was oppressive. And yet one spark of light lights up the whole room. In our world, let's, let's be really clear here. John throws in these dichotomic views of light and dark, good and bad, righteous and sin. He'll go on to say life and death, fellowship and being alone. Our world is in darkness. It's the darkness of sin. And into the darkness of our world, the light of God shines. And it's really easy for us as Christians to go, I, I can see the darkness all around. I see it on the news. I see it in politics. I see it, you know, in the, in the people who are suffering. And, and that's all true. But the really difficult bit and the bit that's harder to do is to acknowledge the darkness that is in our own hearts. And this is the darkness that John's talking about here. Because he says, if we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we're lying and we're not practicing the truth. He goes on to say in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. See, the Gnostics said, because the flesh doesn't matter, then we don't sin. How can we sin? Because we've risen to a whole different level. And yet when we're really honest with ourselves... we will see that there is a resident darkness in our lives. That even as Christians, as this clash goes on between the spirit and the flesh in us. And Paul puts it this way, I do that which I don't want to do and that which I don't want to do, I continue to do. O wretched man that I am. In the modern church, there is so little talk about sin. Let's talk about it. Sin is not just Bad acts, lying, cheating, whatever it is. They are the acts of sin. There is a condition to the human race that is against God. It's against the light. It's against against life. And it's sin. And the the wages of sin, the penalty of sin, the Bible tells us, is death. And even as Christians, when we have accepted Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, you know what I'm talking about here. Let's be honest. Let's be real. There is a battle that gets waged in our souls. And Watchman Nee talked about it this way, that it's like we are a fleshly men, the outer man, and the inner one, the spirit, is trying to break out. And in our brokenness and in our failings and in our failure and our sin, the light of Jesus shines into that darkness and Jesus cries out to us, stop just looking at the world for the sin you see in the world and be honest with yourself and see that there is sin that is still uh, enslaving you and stop being a slave to sin anymore and let the light of Jesus shine in. And so he says, if you you want to say, uh, I am without sin, 
We have no sin. It says we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not us. And he goes even further in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all our righteousness. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the word of God is not in us. No one can say I am without sin. No one can honestly say, this side of glory, I have defeated, I'm completely done with sin. We have this wrestle going on. We have this wrestle in our lives. And church must be a place where we can acknowledge this. And so often in the modern church, we see one of two things happening when it comes to dealing with sin. We see one brand of Christianity that says, don't worry about it. God's defeated it. Jesus has defeated it. Just live in victory and on you go. And what unrealistic nonsense that is. Because it puts, us under, puts a weight on our shoulders that says, you should be living this way now and if you're not, there is something wrong with you. You don't have to carry that. Or there is the other way that says, you are bad, you are evil, you are sinful and we equally get this weight on our shoulders like, The weight of sin was rolled off our shoulders at the cross. What we live in is a tension. That we live as Christians who have the light of God shining into our lives and yet the darkness is still there. And like Paul, we say, wretched man that I am, what will I do with this body of death? And thank God for chapter 2 of 1 John Because he goes on to say, My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. There are two things there that he says about Jesus. First of all, he is an advocate. And some people say, oh, that just means like he's our lawyer that stands in front of God. No. What it means is he stands in our, on our behalf where we cannot stand. We have no right, no right to stand before the throne of God and yet Jesus stands there with his arm around his people and says to the judge of all the earth, they're with me. See, while we might be doing this wrestle, Jesus has already won. And while we might be in this wrestle, Jesus has already claimed his people as his own. And he says, I know you're having this wrestle, but you're mine and I've defeated it. It's not going to be counted against you. You don't need to carry the guilt of sin, which if you're a believer, God has cast away from his presence. He sees it and as far as the east is from the west, we carry it no more. But the second thing he says is this. He is our atoning sacrifice. And the the word in Greek is propitiation, which is a hard word and it's a difficult word, but we need to accept it back into the Christian language. And propitiation is this wonderful word of Christian doctrine, which says that God is angry at sin. God is the wrath of God, the wrath of an angry God. God is angry about what sin has done to his creation. And thank God he is angry. I don't want a God that doesn't get angry. This idea that God's just this cuddly big bear that never gets... Rubbish. I want my God to be angry about the things that are wrong with this world. Because if he is angry, it means he will put it right one day. 
And the way he has put it right is by sending his own son to take the wrath of God himself on his shoulders. That's what propitiation means, to turn away anger, to turn away wrath. And with that moment on the cross when Jesus said, why have you forsaken me? Jesus Christ became our propitiation and he took the wrath and anger of God that should rightfully be on me and he put it on the shoulders of Jesus. Hallelujah for Jesus. When I was 15, I was at a youth camp and some of you have heard this story before. And we had this speaker at the camp on the Sunday morning and he got up to do his talk and he said, I was going to say something, but I'm not going to. I think God's going to do something. I'm just going to sit down and let him do it. And I thought, what a waste of a guy. Like, at least do the work. Don't pretend like you've done the work and you're not going to. You just haven't done the work and you're just going to let God do it. I was in there all judgy. And all of a sudden, I started to cry. And uh, this fellow said, you there, young man, I'd never met the fellow before, come out here. And of course, in front of all my friends and the youth group and all the rest of it, I stand out the front and he said to me, why are you crying? And I said, weeping, I'm a sinner. I felt for the first time in my life that I had grown up in church, the weight of my own sin, that I had that I had abandoned God, that I had rejected God. And through tears, this fellow said to me, do you acknowledge Jesus as your Lord and Saviour? And I said, yes, please. And he said, then your sin is gone. Hallelujah for Jesus being our propitiation. That though we might wrestle still, though our battle is, is against flesh and blood, though that is still ongoing for us, the battle is already won. The battle is the Lord's. See, our world wants to believe that the problem with the world is a lack of education. and Certainly education is good, I'm not denying that. The world wants to believe that political solutions will fix our world. The problem with our world is sin. And the only solution is Jesus. And that's why John in this passage so beautifully reflects what he wrote at the beginning of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him no one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Jesus is our light. There is no other light apart from Jesus. And perhaps you are at a stage in your life where you have never bowed the knee to Jesus. We want you to hear today. Friend, if you have not accepted Jesus as your, as your Lord and Saviour, you are still in sin and the destiny you have is hell. And we don't say this to judge you. We don't say this because we're looking down on you or hating you. We're not the Gnostics. We're saying it to you because we love you and we want you to know that Jesus has already paid for your sin on the cross and his arms are open and he is shining the light of his grace into your life and he says, walk in my light. Don't walk in your darkness anymore. Accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. He's paid for your sin. And this is what we mean as a church when we're talking about enlarge the tent this year because when we're talking about enlarging a tent, 
The only way you do that is to let in more light. And as people of faith, we have to open our doors of our lives and let the light of Jesus shine. And the remarkable thing is, the more Christians let the light of Jesus shine into their lives, the more it shines into them and through them to the world around them. And I shared a story on Easter Day about a lady in our church who was at the gym and she was doing Russian, what are they called? Russian curls? Russian twists, that's the fellow. I, don't, I go to the gym, but more to have coffee. And I, I, like, so if you don't know what a Russian twist is, this is a Russian twist. Feet in the air, so you, and you're doing these ones with a weight. She's doing that with a 10 kilo weight. Coughing and, oh, this is hard. When a lady from her gym who knew that she is a Christian had seen the light of Jesus shine through her, came up to her, stood over her and said, tell me more about what you believe. There's nothing special about her. She would be horrified if I said there was, other than she lets the light of Jesus shine through her life. The more we let the light of Jesus shine into our lives, the more it will shine through us into the world around us. And so the obvious question is, well, how do we do it? How do, we, how do we let God open up our lives and expose those areas of darkness so that we can be transformed and let the light of Jesus shine into us? And, the most, and it's, it's just so simple, yet we don't do it. It's this book. That's why Psalm 119 verse 105 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Even this week, in one of my quiet times in the, in the morning, I was just reading a passage and it was just like God went, wake up, Mark. There is this area of your life you're not handing over to me at the moment. You're trying to shroud it in darkness when I want to put my light there. The word of God speaks to us because the Holy Spirit speaks through it. And just a few weeks ago, we had a baptism service. And I just loved the test. I loved all three testimonies. But many of you who were there will remember the testimony from Beck Howes. A lady who, I don't think she's even been a Christian one year yet. And this is part of what she said. Since my mid-twenties up until my brain tumour, I had a history of heavy binge drinking and smoking I believe Jesus has given me the strength to give these addictions away. Now I am addicted to going to church, reading the Bible, and developing a relationship with Jesus. That's what the light of Jesus does to a heart that is open. And that's the invitation, isn't it? To put down the weapons, to put down the guards that keep us in darkness the fears that keep us in the darkness where we feel somehow we're safe because we can control the darkness and let the barrier down and let the light of Jesus shine in. Heavenly Father, we are sorry for the times where we, we put the barriers up, almost choosing to stay in darkness because we know it and it's safe. Somehow we believe it's going to satisfy. 
when all the time the light of the world, Jesus Christ, is opening his light to us to shine. Oh, Father, thank you for the light of Jesus. Thank you that though we were thoroughly undeserving of that light, he came and he died and he rose again. And by the Spirit of God, the light shines into our lives today. I pray for anyone here today who has not yet bowed the knee to Jesus and said, I want your light, that today would be the day when they do that. And for each of us who are already believers, that we would be real about this and say, there is darkness still, and I want the light of Jesus to shine through it. And so, Father, we pray that you would do that and that as we open our lives to the light of Jesus and we're honest and we're real, the light of Jesus will not just shine into us but shine through us to a world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand with us as we sing the last song? Our Father everlasting, all the all-creating one, God Almighty.